Today's scripture reading is John 12, verses 37 through 50. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart in turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as a light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in the darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my word has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. Well, the Gospel of John, if you've been with us for any length of time, you are aware that there are major themes that run throughout the gospel, and these themes um, come up over and over again. And what these themes do in the gospel of John is they help us to understand, to understand the message. They help us to understand the mission, and they help us to understand the man, the man that is Jesus Christ. For John reminds us right over and over again that Jesus was a man, that he was a man uniquely anointed and divinely attested to man. And John makes this clear, that Jesus also had a mission, and it was a uniquely ordained, a glory-bringing and heaven-sent mission. And John, again, makes this clear, that Jesus also had a message. It's a uniquely inspired, universally important message. John, again, over and over again, makes this clear. And what, what the Gospel of John is doing is developing these themes so that we can understand, and he helps us to see, and, and how we might more clearly understand the man, the message, and the mission that is Jesus Christ. And these themes run throughout John. There's a theme of, of light and, and darkness. There's a theme of life and, and, and death. There, is, there, are, there are signs. There are festivals. There are truths. And, 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 and there's the theme of love and, and sacrifice. And these themes run throughout the gospel reminding us of Jesus, the man, the mission, and the message. 
And there's a theme that is particularly important to us this morning that we have seen over and over again that is almost, it comes to its like culmination this morning in this passage that is found at the end of chapter 12. And the theme is the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. If there is any theological point that the Gospel of John is seeking to drive home to his readers, it is this, that God is a big God. Did you hear what I said? God is big. You see it over and over again in John what is often called big God theology. Okay? Big God theology. That's for the everyday theologians. <laughs> and what is big God theology? Well, big God theology is the understanding that the Creator God has the whole of His creation. Men, women, children, nature, Events, circumstances, consequences, all in his hands. The bigness of God is that nothing is out of his control. No person and no event catches him off guard. Nothing surprises him nor is there anything that causes him to be frustrated or at a loss for words. Abraham Kuyper put it this way, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ who is sovereign over all, does not say, mine. All of it, all of it belongs to him. And so when we say big God theology, all that is is an easier way of saying the sovereignty of God the sovereignty of God. And this is what you see over and over again in the Gospel of John. You see it from the beginning to the end. It's what the Gospel of John is communicating about the nature and the purposes of God. This is what John is communicating about the man, the mission, and the message. It's all in the hands of God. John chapter 1, verses 11 through 13, the Bible says, Speaking of Jesus, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. How did they become children of God? Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. 
You see it again in John chapter 6, verse 44, where Jesus says, in no uncertain terms, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Again, that, that theme running throughout. If you're going to understand the man, if you're going to understand the mission, if you're going to understand the message, you got to understand how big God is. That's what Jesus says. John chapter 10, verse 18, where he's speaking of his death. He said, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. And this command I received from the Father. Why? Because God is big and is in control of all things, even the death and resurrection of Jesus. No one else. No one else. And so as we have looked at the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, we have seen this consistent theme of God the Father ordaining and orchestrating the life of God the Son. Hasn't that been the case? Jesus has, has gone to great lengths to say over and over again that God the Father is ordaining and orchestrating the man, the message, and the mission. Because God is in control of all things. God is in control of all things. Because God is big. And therefore, therefore, it should not be surprising then, as we get to the end of Jesus' public ministry, as we see it recorded in John chapter 12, that we see it summed up. And how is the ministry of Jesus summed up? It is summed up in the context of God's command and control of all things Jesus. God's command and control of all things Jesus. To explain how and what Jesus was doing, the Gospel of John reveals the bigness and sovereignty of God. Everything Jesus did or didn't do, everything Jesus said or didn't say was in service to a big and sovereign God. Now, I think this is important. That's why I'm belaboring it this morning. Because I think this is very important for us to remember this morning, especially those who call themselves into being in some type of ministry. There can be no more important truth and thought and motivation for us this morning than the bigness of God. There is nothing more important for us to remember that we tend to forget that God is big. Amen, brother. Somebody ought to say it. God is sovereign. 
And therefore, while the labors are ours, the results are his. They are always his. Always. Always. I don't care what you are doing, beloved. Think about this. If God is sovereign over the effectiveness of Moses and sovereign over the effectiveness of David and sovereign over the effectiveness of Jeremiah and sovereign over the effectiveness of Jesus, how much more is he sovereign over our labors? What a blessed thing to remember, particularly in the midst of a pandemic. The, plan, the pandemic has caused us to struggle in ways that we could not have imagined we would have to struggle. And yet the blessed thing to remember this morning Whatever struggles we're having in the church, God is sovereign over the pastoring of the church. Whatever struggles you're having in your home, listen, beloved, God is sovereign over the raising of your children. God is sovereign over sin and sickness. God is sovereign over joy and pain. God is sovereign over life and death. Everything. There is nothing too big for God. And so, beloved, as we minister, as we preach, as we teach, as we serve, as we live, as we give, we should always remember that God is bigger than anything I can or cannot do. His ways are greater than my ways. His purposes are grander than my, than my purposes or plans. His will supersedes mine. God is big, beloved. Did I say that already? God is big, beloved, and he's bigger than the biggest things in this life. And that includes blind unbelief. Fearful faith, and ultimately the saving of sinners. He's bigger than all that. No matter how daunting those things seem to be to us, he's bigger than all that. And that's what the Bible says this morning, that God is bigger than even that. to the amazement, to the amazement of those who are here this morning. That after Jesus had done all that he was going to do in his earthly ministry, all 
after he had said all that he was going to say, the Bible says in John chapter 12 and verse 36 that Jesus departed from the people and he hid himself away. He is making his exit. He has done the signs that he was going to do. He has said the things that he was going to say. He was done. He was finished. And you look at it, and what more could he say than he had already said? What, what, what more could he do than he had already done? What more faithful witness could he be than he had already been? And yet, notice what the Bible says about our Lord's ministry in chapter 12, verse 37. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. Now, I think and what the scriptures are doing here. This is the Bible inviting us to wrestle with the seemingly failed results of Jesus' ministry. We tend not to think of it that way. But this is what the Bible is inviting us to wrestle with. The seemingly failed results of Jesus' ministry. Because it says, even after he had performed so many signs, and he hadn't done it in secret, he had done it in their presence, they still failed to believe. There was large-scale unbelief. And by any measurement, any human measurement, Pastor Phil, Jesus was unsuccessful. As a startup company, Jesus wasn't doing well. As a church planter, things weren't going good, Pastor. The crowds were coming, but nobody wanted to commit. We know how that is, don't we, Pastor? <laughs> they come, they check it out. They're like, that's nice. That's good. They come, but they were not committed. But not only were the crowds coming and not committed, beloved, the disciples were divided. All this time they had been with Jesus. They had seen the miracles. They had listened to the teachings. They had seen his faithfulness. And after all this time, they were still barely hanging on. In fact, one was already gone. 
The masses liked the miracles, but they didn't buy into the message. And therefore, they refused to trust the man. If Jesus had been a church planter, his sending organization would have told him that it was time to pull the plug. You had given it your best shot, but no one is coming. We got better ways to use those resources. There are better ways to allocate those funds. How do you explain this, beloved? How do you explain that? How do you explain that this was Jesus? I mean, this just wasn't anybody. This was Jesus, the one who had came to bring light. He was the one that God had ordained to open blind eyes. And yet, after several years of preaching and teaching, most of the people remained in the dark. They remained in blind unbelief. The one sent to open the eyes of the blind, most still remained in blind unbelief. I explain this. How are we to understand the seemingly ineffectiveness of Jesus? Well, the Bible explains it. The Bible explains it. The Bible explains by pointing out that this is not the first time. This is not the first time the prophet Isaiah experienced this too. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1, Isaiah says to the Lord, Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Now understand, beloved, this is Isaiah knowing the frustration of not being heard, experiencing the frustration of being rejected. Because if anyone should have been listened to, it was Isaiah. If anyone's words should have been heeded, it was Isaiah. Why? Because Isaiah heard the voice of God. Isaiah saw the glory of Christ. Isaiah was sent directly from God with the Word of God for the people of God. And yet, in the end, the Bible says they rejected him. They did not believe his word. And therefore, in chapter 53, verse 1, Isaiah prayed, Lord, who hath believed our report? How do you explain that? How do you explain that? Sent from God to the people of God, 
and nobody hears him. Sent from God with the message from God and the word of God, and nobody heeds it. Nobody believes. How do you explain that? Well, the Bible explains it this way. It is not just belief that is ordained for God's glory. It is unbelief as well. Did you hear what I said? It is not just belief that has been ordained for the glory of God. It is unbelief as well. The blind give glory to God just as those who have gained their sight. In Romans chapter 9, the Bible teaches us clearly that the glory of God will be seen in the saved and the unsaved. That the glory of God is seen in the redeemed and the lost. Why? Because God is big. And he is sovereign over it all. And so unbelief does not surprise God. Unbelief does not surprise God because God is sovereign over unbelief. He is bigger than belief. He is bigger than unbelief. And your faith or lack of faith does not disturb God's will. It is governed by it. Your faith or lack of faith is governed by God. He's not shocked. He's not frustrated. That's what it says in John chapter 12 and verse 40, doesn't it? How do you explain it? This is how you explain it. That he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. God's got the whole world, beloved, in his hands, including, including the faith of the faithless. He's in control of it all. He's in control of it all. No one lives. Don't miss this. No one lives except God ordains life. There's nobody coming into the world except God ordained that they come into the world. And therefore, also, no one believes except God ordains that faith. No one has sight except the Lord gives them sight. That's what the Bible says. Exodus chapter 4 and verse 11, God's talking to Moses. He's reminding Moses, it is the Lord who gives hearing to the deaf. It is the Lord who gives sight to the blind. And consequently, therefore, beloved, it is the Lord who gives faith to the unbelieving. Now, Jesus wasn't disturbed by this. 
The Bible said he said enough. He went on and hid himself. But the potential for the disturbance is ours. The potential for the disturbance is the disciples. The potential for the disturbance is the churches. And therefore, the Bible here offers us this encouraging explanation. God is big. Because we get discouraged. We get discouraged when we don't see faith in others. We get discouraged when we don't see belief in others, especially those close to us. When husbands don't see faith in their wives, or, or wives don't see faith in their husbands, when, when mothers don't see faith in their children, when, when children don't win, witness faith in their fathers, when, 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 when there's no faith in our siblings or our friends or our co-workers that we've been praying for and laboring over in prayer and sharing with, when we don't see faith, we get discouraged. And yet we should take heart this morning like our Lord this morning. Remember that faith is in the hands of our Father. Faith is in the hands of our Father. And I don't know about you, beloved, but that is a comfort. That should serve to us as a hope. This is the assurance with which we live. This is the assurance with which we preach. This is the assurance with which we pray that faith is in the hands of the Father. Consider it, beloved. Consider it. Consider if the, re if the reality was that faith was in my hands. If your faith this morning was in my hands, and I really sincerely believe that, they'd have to cart me off. I would have be a nervous wreck. Because I would be wondering over and over and over again, had I said enough? Had I did enough? Had I been enough? But faith is not in my hands. As Jesus understood, faith is in the hands of the Father. As Jonah chapter 2 and verse 9 reminds us, salvation belongs to the Lord. As Romans chapter 9 and verses 15 and 16 remind us, God says, I will show mercy to anyone I choose, and I will show compassion to anyone I choose. So it is God who decides to show mercy. We can neither choose it nor work for it. Our calling, our calling this morning is to be reminded that you cannot save anyone. Our calling is not even to guarantee that they will someday be saved as much as we would like to. Our calling is when called upon to give an answer. 
when asked to faithfully bear witness for the Father. And yet, beloved, don't miss this. Even when we fail to do that, God is still sovereign. He is still in control. Even when you fail to bear witness for him. And we do. Because while there is blind unbelief out there, there is often, too often, fearful faith in here. And the Word of God this morning says God is bigger than that. God is bigger than the blind unbelief out there. And He's bigger than the fearful faith in here. He's bigger. He's bigger than that. He's big enough to handle blind unbelief. He's big enough to handle fearful faith. Jesus' ministry was marked out by rejection. That's right. He was rejected by men, the Bible says. And over and over again, he was rejected. God had ordained that most who heard him would not believe. And yet the key operative word there is most, not all. Most of the Jews rejected him, but not all. Look at John chapter 12 and verse 42. Nevertheless, nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So they would not be put out of the synagogue. Notice, notice the contrast there. Notice the word there, nevertheless. There was rapid unbelief. Even so, yet still, there were those who did believe. They had faith, but their faith was crippled by fear. Now, Again, the Bible here is demonstrating the sovereignty of God over the mission, the message, and the man that is Jesus. And explaining why there was so much unbelief when the men, when the man, the message, and the mission was so faithful. Well, one, because God had ordained unbelief. And on the surface, it would seem that no one believed in Jesus. It seemed like no one was trusting Jesus because no one or very few were willing to bear witness for him. But again, but again, beloved, listen, don't be fooled only by what you see, beloved. Faith is often complicated and 
can be crippled at times. And our text says that the faith that was present, it wasn't dead. It was just afraid. It was afraid. In Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 25, the Bible reminds us that the fear of man is a real thing. It is a real thing. It is a trap. It is a net that entangles you. It is spiritually crippling. It will stunt your growth in Jesus so much, beloved, and it will entangle you so much that at time it will give the appearance of not having faith at all. When I was a young boy, you know, we didn't have a lot of TV. We definitely had no, no there was no cable or anything like that. You know, we only had three channels, ABC, NBC, and CBS. That was it, three channels. And so if anything good ever came on TV, you were always glued to it. And every Sunday, I remember Disney, Wild World of Disney came on at 8 o'clock. But right before Wild World of Disney, right before we got to see David Crockett and all that stuff, right before that, at 7.30, there was this show called Mutual of Omaha, Wild Kingdom. Anybody remember that? I know Bob does. Hey, there we go. Mutual of Omaha, Wild Kingdom. And I was glued to it. It's one of these animal shows, right, when they go out and they're, they're, they're showing you the experiences of these animals. And I always loved the big cats. It's always been my favorite. Tigers and, and lions and, and jaguars and, and leopards and cheetahs. I love these big cats. And it always amazed me. I was always amazed at how simple it was to catch one of these big cats. All they did was put a net on it. And I was like, that's all y'all gonna do is just throw this big old huge net over this cat. And beloved, without fail, when they put that big net on a cat, that cat was done. It entangled him. It trapped him. It crippled him until he will eventually just lay there, defeated. That's what fear does to your faith. Throws a net over you until in full submission you're defeated makes you ineffective and defeated. And there were those among the Jewish authorities and leaders, the Bible says, who believed in Jesus, who saw the miracles and believed him to be who he said he was, and yet they struggled to know what to do with their faith Scared to be found out, afraid to lose their life or position, and doubt it, doubt it, 
that even if they did speak up, what difference will it really make? I'm reminded of this because I've seen it, that faith in Christ is not always exercised to its fullest. It's not. It's not. You ever read the Bible and want to know where you are in the Bible? Well, I can tell you where you are. You and I are the faithless ones. That's where we are. We're the sinners. We're the faithless ones. We're the doubters. That's where we are. Who among us this morning has never been gripped by fear or indecision in your life? Who among us has always chosen Jesus when given the opportunity? Who among us this morning has never doubted for a moment that God would provide or take care? Who can say, who can honestly say this morning that they have never left Jesus out of the conversation? That they have never left the Lord at the door? Faith has a cost that we are not always willing to pay. And it doesn't mean, beloved, that you don't have faith. It just means that any given moment, my faith can come up small. At any given moment, my faith comes up small. When I was in high school, I was a pretty good football player. I was all state in football. I got a full-ride scholarship to play football in college. But there was sometimes you wouldn't have known it. I remember sometimes being on the field, and I'm back there, and that big fella's over there, and I'm thinking, I don't want nothing to do with him. At any moment, you can come up small. Faith does that sometimes. It comes up small. Who are these? Who are these with this fearful faith? Who are these with this little faith? They are Nicodemus, who was no doubt one of the authorities, who was on the council who the Bible says in John chapter 3 and verse 2, came to Jesus by night. Why? For fear. For fear of the others. For fear of the other authorities. For fear of the others on the council. He came to Jesus by night. There was Joseph of Arimathea. Who was he? The Bible says that he was a member of the ruling council. There's no doubt he was probably there. 
And in John chapter 19 and verse 38, you know what he is called? A secret disciple. What? Do those really exist? At any moment, beloved, at any moment, your faith comes up small. Who are these? This was Peter, who was a member. He wasn't just a disciple, beloved. He was a member of the inner circle. If anybody went anywhere with Jesus, Jesus first said, Peter. No one was as close to Jesus as Peter was. No one saw more or heard more with Jesus than Peter did. And the Bible says in John chapter 18, verse 25, that for the fear of men, Peter denied the Lord three times. Because at any moment, faith can come up small. This should remind us, I think, it should remind us, beloved, be careful. Be careful when you judge fear in others. Be careful for those who are fearful today by the grace and the sovereignty of God are often faithful tomorrow. This is Nicodemus, right? And in John chapter 3, he came to Jesus by night, but by John chapter 7, he was speaking up before the council for Jesus. This is Joseph Arimathea, who the Bible says was a secret disciple, but eventually went to Pilate and, request, and requested the body of Jesus. And this is Peter. who the Bible says eventually would remind us that you know what true faith is. True faith, beloved, is not going around beating people over the head with the Bible. I know because I've done it. True faith is not going around beating people up over the head with the Bible. True faith is this, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks and to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Whenever I read that, I think about Peter being by that fire and how he probably never forgot that. And here he reminds himself and us. And when I went to the fire, I didn't have to go to that fire preaching Jesus. I didn't have to go to that fire telling everybody I'm a disciple. I didn't have to go to that fire preaching fire and brimstone to everybody there. But when they asked me, I needed to be ready to give an answer. And I needed to do it faithfully with respect and gentleness. 
you find yourself, beloved, with little faith this morning, I want you to take heart. Take heart in this, that God is bigger than your faith, even fearful faith. Why? Because you might be afraid, but God is not. God is not. And I know, beloved, I know that there are those among us this morning who are fearful. And if that's the case, you've come to the right place this morning. Because ours is not a place to judge. Ours is a place to encourage. Encourage. I want you to hear the Lord saying to you, fear not. Fear not, little one. The Lord Jesus is with you. And even when you fail him, he is not going to fail you. Even when you might act like in any moment that you don't care, I want you to hear the Lord saying in 1 Peter 5 and 7, God cares for you. He's a big God. He's a big God, and he's bigger than blind unbelief. Beloved, he is bigger than your faith, even when it is fearful. He can handle that too, because ultimately, he's sovereign over the saving of sinners. If there was anything that we were to get from the last public words of Jesus God the Son, it was this, that let it be known that God the Father stands behind and in control of the mission, the message, and the man. And that's what Jesus says in John 12 and verse 44, right? Belief in Jesus was a call to believe in God the Father who sent him. God sent Jesus. That's it. That's it. That helps to make sense of everything. Oh, that's why it happened. Because God sent him. That's why it worked out like it did. Because God sent him. This is the bigness of God. This is the sovereignty of God. God sent the Savior. This is what Jesus communicated throughout his life. This is what he was communicating over and over again. This is the message, this is the mission, this is the man that God had ordered and ordained. Jesus came to save sinners. That's it. And everything he did and how it all fell out, but for the sole purpose of saving sinners. What was the best way for sinners to get saved? For God to send Jesus. 
What was the best message and mission in saving sinners? For Jesus to be rejected so that God could get glorified. All of it, all of it, for the glory of God. Jesus came to demonstrate and reveal the sovereignty of God in the sovereignty of grace. That's the point. That's the point. And this is our Lord's final message. And it revealed his mission, his final words to Israel. It's not words of condemnation of sin. Don't miss that. His final words is not a list of their transgressions. Last thing that he has to say to the nation of Israel is not he calling out idolaters. He's not calling them liars. He's not calling them murderers. He's not calling them adulterers. He's not calling them anything like that. Why? Because such things were self-evident. His mission and message was not judgment. His mission and message was grace. And so he says in verse 47, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge them. For I did not come to judge the world. I came to save the world. His mission was not condemnation. His mission was salvation. The man, the message, and the mission. Was it condemnation? It was salvation. Salvation. We memorize John 3, 16. There I say, everyone knows it. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And whoever believes in him shall not perish, but I shall have everlasting life. But don't stop there. What is 317 saying? For God did not send his, world, his son into the world to condemn the world. But in order that the world would be saved through him. You want to know how important that is? That is important because we often use Jesus as a weapon. Like a tomahawk. Cutting and beating people up with Jesus. Jesus didn't see himself that way. He didn't see himself that way. The Father didn't send him to do that. He was sent to save. He brought grace. Not judgment to sinners. Now, beloved, don't get it twisted. Don't get it wrong. Judgment Day is coming. I know that's what all you legalists want to hear, so you got that. <laughs> Judgment Day is coming. No one understands that more than Jesus. He knows that. Judgment Day is coming. But Jesus says, it is not today. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of sovereign grace. Today is the day of great mercy. Jesus was sent 
to say. Listen, listen to me. Listen to me. Jesus did not die on the cross to send people to hell. He died on the cross to save sinners. This is the man. This is the message. This is the mission. He came to save. He came to bring grace, forgiveness, and mercy. He came to welcome sinners to himself. This is the love of God, the Father this morning, beloved. For you do understand that Jesus just didn't come to save. He was sent. He was sent. He was sent by the Father. That's what the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, right? He was given for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Christ was given to us, not to judge us, but to save us. Not to condemn us, but to save us. The Father sent the Savior. The Father gave us Jesus. The Father gives us grace. The Father gives us faith. The Father gives us Jesus. What more can he say than to you he has said? What more can he do than for you he has done? Beloved, we serve and worship a big God. But that God is big in mercy. He is big in love. He is big in grace this morning. He is big on saving sinners. That's why Jesus came. I was the man that was the mission. That's the message this morning. Jesus saves. Amen. Let's pray.